Adults, please turn with me into the book of Genesis. In the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis. The 28th chapter and the 29th chapter of the book of Genesis. Praise the Lord. Thank God for the book of Genesis. I love the book of Genesis. I love preaching the book of Genesis. Every part of it. Every part of it. But when you get into these patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, the story is just so rich and I don't know how to put it um, other than to say that they're so human. <laughs> and uh, they walk with God, but there's so much human element in it that we can glean from as human beings, amen, um, living in this world. Different situations come and problems arise and and we see how uh, things are done. Sometimes not good, sometimes not not uh, bad. But in anyway, it's a rich section that we're looking at here. Now, in the twenty seventh chapter, we saw how that uh, Jacob received the blessing, which was a part of the birthright. Um, he tricked his father into this along with his mother Rebecca uh, tricked him into giving him the blessing instead of the elder son Esau receiving it it belonged to him God gave it to him but he went about it the wrong way um, deceiving and tricking his way into getting that that was the problem if he had trusted God if he had waited on God uh, he learned this many years ago that God would have crossed the hands and took care of him, given him the blessing. But he relied upon his own craftiness and so on and so forth, uh, along with Rebecca. And he has to flee for his life as a result of this. Uh, he goes over into Haran. He's going to be there for 20 years. He will never see his mother again alive. So, he paid a great price for not waiting on God and not trusting God um, with this promise that God had given him. That brings us to the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis. The Bible says, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Now remember, Esau had done that. Esau had taken two daughters or two wives uh, they are Canaanites, which is equal to being an unbeliever. Um, so Esau um, really grieved his parents in doing this. And so we see here that um, the charge is that Jacob not do that, that he would not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And so we see Isaac is giving him a charge here. And in verse 2 he says, Arise, go to Padan Aram, which that's Haran, okay, or modern-day Syria. Um, so go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessings of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. 
And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he, and he went to Badanaram unto Laban the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. He looked, and behold, a well in the field, and lo, there were these flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. We thank you for the inspiration and the anointing that rests upon us. We, we thank you for that in advance, mighty God. And we give you all glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. So there's a little bit of a cover-up here because we know that Rebecca's desire for Jacob to go to be with her brother Laban in Haran is motivated by the fact that she has, along with Jacob, tricked Esau into giving uh, Jacob the blessing. Esau is mad as a result of that, the older son. He hates Jacob because of this. Uh, his life is in danger. And so there's a little cover up here. Rebecca says, we need to send Jacob over so he can find a wife. And we don't want him to find a wife of the Canaanites, so we need to send him to uh, our family over in Padanaram or Haran that he may take a wife of that family. Uh, so there's a little bit of a cover-up as to motive here. But we see here in the 28th chapter that Isaac calls Jacob, blesses him, and charges him to go and take a wife, uh, not of the Canaanites, but of uh, the family there in Haram, sends him away with the blessings of God upon his life to Rebekah, Laban's, uh, Rebekah's brother Laban. And so we see in verse 5, Isaac sent away Jacob. He went to Padanaram unto Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now, just a real quick note. The Scripture talks about in verses 6 uh, through 9 that Esau notices that the Canaanites that he's married has brought grief to his father and to his mother. And so what he does is he goes out and... Uh, he seeks a, a wife, not a Canaanite wife. In verse 9 it says, Then went Esau unto Ishmael and took the wife, and took unto the wives which he had. And these are the two Canaanite wives. Um, Mahalal, the daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son, the sister of Naboth. So anyway, you get the point is he's got these two Canaanite wives and now he goes and marries um, the daughter of Ishmael. Now, he thinks that's going to change the outcome. Okay? See, he, he knows that the blessing and birthright has gone to Jacob. And he knows that he's married unbelievers or Canaanites. So he goes and he helps by obeying his father and his mother and taking uh, a wife not of the Canaanites. That that's going to change the outcome. Obviously, it's too late for him. Uh, it will not change the outcome nonetheless. Now, verse 10 takes us back to Jacob. So the Bible says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, first of all, Jacob is about 75 years of age. So don't think that he's um, a young teenage boy. He's 75 years old, approximately 75 years old, when he leaves Beersheba 
and he goes over to Haran. Now Haran is about 500 miles away. So this 75-year-old man, obviously he's strong, he's not weak and old like a 75-year-old may be today, but he's got to take this journey 500 miles by foot. That's a long ways to walk. So 75 years of age, he begins his journey to go to Haran. Um, the Bible tells us as, as he does this, he travels about 70 miles. Verse 11, he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in the place to sleep. We will find out later that this is Luz. This location is Luz. He will call it, change the name from Luz to Bethel. So basically, he's traveled 70 miles from Beersheba to Bethel. He's still got a long ways to go. Now, he has left home. Uh, in leaving home, he's lonely. In leaving home, he's hopeless. In leaving home, he's helpless. In leaving home, he's basically banished. Okay? In leaving home, also in that culture, you need to understand that as you leave one geographical location and go to another, it was believed by that culture that you were leaving your gods behind. So not only was Jacob, as he's traveling, leaving his, his mother and his father Isaac and Rebekah behind, uh, amen, lonely, helpless, hopeless, banished, but in his mind, he's leaving his God behind. Because as I said, in that culture, they believed that gods were geographically located which we know that that's not true. And Jacob's going to find out that's not true. But in his mind, that's what he thinks. You know, and sometimes when we travel, you might get the same feeling. You might think that God is only in this church. You know, and as you travel, you might be thinking that you're leaving God behind. But that's not true. But anyway, that's the mindset of Jacob. So he's lonely, he's helpless, he's hopeless, he's banished, and he thinks he's left God behind. He makes his way, makes his journey to Haran. He finds a certain place about 70 miles. Uh, you know, traveled about 70 miles. Still got it close to 500 miles or 400 miles to go. The Bible says he lights on a certain place and he tarries there all night because the sun was set. That's verse 11. He took the stones of the place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. See, there's some things in Jacob that God is going to have to get out of Jacob. There is a reason why he's in the condition he's in. He didn't wait for God. He didn't trust God to bring about the promise. He has taken it in his own hands along with his mother's to deceive his dad. As a result of that, Esau wants to kill him. He's got to run for his life. And so there's some stuff in Jacob that, that old cheating, conniving, tricking thing that was in him, deceiving ways. God had to get that out of Jacob. And so in, in some sense, what he's going through right now is his own making. Okay? He really has done it to himself. He didn't wait on God. He didn't trust God to bring it about. Took it in his own hands. And now he's banished, lonely, hopeless, helpless, running from, for his life from Esau. 
If he had just trusted God and waited on God, it had a different outcome. Troubles came as a result of his sin. Didn't see his mom for over. Didn't see his mom ever again. Could he be away for twenty years? He goes to a certain place. He puts his head down. He has. He doesn't have a soft pillow to lay his head on. He's got a rock for a pillow. And I've never lit, put my head on a rock and tried to tried to go to sleep with my head on a rock like that. But this is another manifestation. It's it's a a picture of where sin takes you. And sin takes you into hard places. Instead of a soft pillow to put your head on, you're going to find a rock to put your, your head on. Hopeless, helpless, banished, running for your life. Basically nothing. Put your head on a rock. It's late at night. The prophet talks about the prophet Isaiah that Jacob's called the worm. And there he is on the ground, groveling around like a worm. Thou worm Jacob. He's got to learn some things. He's got to get some stuff out of him that are not of God. He's got to learn the law of the birthright. That the birthright belongs to the elder son. Um, God can change that if He chooses to, but you're going to have to wait on God and trust God to bring that about. But for you to trick and deceive your way into getting that uh, is not a good thing. So Jacob's going to have to learn the importance of the law of the birthright. He's going to have to get some stuff out of him. So basically, in the condition he's in right now, I'll say it again, helpless, hopeless, banished, lonely, with his head on a rock because of the sin that is in his life. He's going to learn some things the next 20 years of his life. He wouldn't wait on God. He wouldn't trust God for God to bring about the promise and so his hastiness, his lack of trust and not waiting on God will be replaced by, you will see it, by 20 long years of waiting. We can't learn to trust God and wait on God. God allow us to get into situations that all we can and all we will do is wait and trust on God. For 20 long years, this man, you're going to see it, is going to wait and wait and wait and wait. Wait for the wife he wants to marry. Wait for the woman of his life. Wait, 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 wait. Twenty long years. You know. So the Bible says he puts his head on a rock. And all of a sudden something happens that he wasn't expecting to happen because he thought he left his God behind. And the Bible says as he's laying there in the dirt, his head on that rock groveling like a worm in the dust. He has a dream. And the Bible says in this dream, verse 12, as he slept, he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. God of Abraham thy father, the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest, to thee will I give it. And to thy seed, all of a sudden he has this dream, this dream, this ladder coming down from heaven, touching the earth. And the Lord standing upon the ladder. And God begins to speak to him. He thought he left God behind. He's lonely, he's banished, he's hopeless, he's helpless. Roveling like a worm in the dirt with his head on the stone. 
And all of a sudden, he has this dream. In this dream, he sees angels are with him. He would have never believed that angels were with him. He thought he left God behind and all that behind, his family behind. And all of a sudden, he finds out by a dream from, or by a revelation from God that God is still with him. That he didn't leave God at home. That God was still with him. And that the angels of God were with him. Angels of God ascending and descending. Amen. Are you with me on this ladder that's reaching from heaven to earth? God is showing him, I'm with you, Jacob, and my angels are with you. And you need to keep that in mind because we're going to see when he comes back to Bethel, there's going to be the return of the angels. And after 20 years, you're going to see when he comes back home, there's going to be angels that's going to greet him. So God is showing him, my angels are with you, Jacob. I'm with you. You didn't leave me home. I'm still with you. It's really mercy, it's grace that this is happening. And we know that this ladder with the Lord on the top of it is, is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ because Jesus said that in John 1.51 when He talked to Nathaniel. I mean, we preached that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said that that, that ladder is, was a type of Him. He said, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He said, I'm that ladder that Jacob saw in the dream. I'm the one that's going to bring heaven and earth back together again and bridge the gap between man and God. He said that to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, he said to Nathaniel, he said, There's, you're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. But the one who had the vision of the latter was full of guile. Jacob was full of guile. There was stuff in him. He wasn't completely, totally committed. Unlike Nathaniel. But remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel. He said, when Nathaniel confessed, he believed that the Lord was who? The Messiah. He said, you believe me because I told you I saw you sitting under the fig tree. He said, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and ascending upon the Son of Man. And he's pointing back to this time in Jacob. He said, Nathaniel, you have no God. But there was a time that another man named Jacob who would become Israel was full of guile. And I appeared to him in a type. A manifestation of God. God manifesting Himself in a visible way. And this, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says, as Jacob has this dream, these ascending and descending angels of God, again, we know it's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And the Bible says in verse 13, Behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest. To thee will I give it into thy seed. See, he's still in the land of Canaan. Abraham, when he first entered into the land of Canaan in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, he built an altar here in Bethel. So he hasn't, he hasn't left the land of Canaan yet or the promised land. And so God says to him, I'm still with you. There's angels here with you. They're protecting you. They're going to be with you. I'm going to give you this land just like I promised Abraham, your father, your grandfather. And so the Bible tells us God continues to speak. The Lord's talking to him. So I'm going to give you this land. 
You're going to spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Of course, Galatians tells us that's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ being the descendant of Israel or Jacob. Verse 15, God says, And I'm with you, and I'm going to keep you in all places whither you go, and will bring thee again to this land, for I will not leave thee until I've done that which I have spoken unto thee. He said, You're going to come back home someday. I'm going to be with you all through the various things you're going to go through through the future. But I'm going to bring you back home. Protection. I'm going to bless your life. Amen. In verse 16, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. I wasn't expecting this. I thought I left my God behind. I thought I left Him at home. And here I'm finding out here in this desolate place as I grovel like a little worm in the dirt with my head upon a hard stone as a result of the sin and the guile of my life. He said, I found that God is with me. That God's been with me. And He's going to con- and God makes a promise to me. He's going to continue to be with me. And He's going to bless my life. And angels of God are going to be walking with me. Amen? He said, I didn't know. The Lord was in this place and I knew it not. I didn't know God would be here. I didn't know I'd find God here in this desolate place. In verse 17, he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Fear gripped his heart when he realized that the presence of God was there. He was afraid. The word afraid here literally means that he was, he was terrorized. He was full of fear that something harmful was going to happen to him. This is the kind of response people had when they had... Uh, encounters with God's presence, they would become afraid and think that something bad was going to happen to them. Number two, that fear created a reverence and a respect and an awe for God. So, he's got some fear in him. He's terrorized. He thinks that maybe something bad is going to happen to him. It's also a reverential respect and awe of God. The Bible says his response, the presence of God, he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but what? The house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. This place right here, in this desolate place. And Jewish commentators, and I spent some time studying even more this morning before I came. Jewish commentators say that this was the location of the temple of Israel. I don't know about that. I don't know if you can prove that. I don't know. And what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that they believe that this place is not just a physical place but is a type and a picture of Jerusalem okay and that the house here when when Jacob says this is the house of God he's speaking of Jerusalem where the temple would be built and I'm not going to get into all of that okay that's not my intention this morning but God finds out who Jacob is he already knows who he is by his response here and now Jacob finds out who God is and he says this is the house of God this is where God must be worshipped And this is the gate of heaven. This is how you get to heaven. It's through God. It's through Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you. Jesus is the house of God. God indwelt the body of Jesus Christ. He's the house of God. And He's the gate of heaven. That means He's the only way that you can get to heaven. 
There is absolutely no other way to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Amen. He's the house of God. He's the gate of heaven. And verse 18, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon it. He's going to memorialize this encounter with God. It's important to him that he remembers it. So he puts this pillar up, the stone that he had his head on, he puts it as a pillar, he pours oil upon it, the anointing there. And what does he do in verse 19? He called the name of that place Bethel instead of Luz. Why would you do that, Jacob? Why would you set up a memorial to this experience with God? Why would you pour oil on the top of this pillar? And why, why would you call this the house of God, Bethel, and change the name from Luz to Bethel? Why would you do that? Well, Luz simply means an almond tree. But Jacob said, this place right here is more to me than just an almond tree. This place right here is the place where a person should worship God because the presence of God is here. This is the house of God. This is where God must be worshipped. This is where God must be praised. He said, this, this place to me is important. It's a sacred place. The house of God should be a sacred place for us. Sad to say there are a lot of Luz Christians. A Luz Christian is somebody that, that to them all it is is an almond tree location. A Luz Christian is a Christian who the house of God is not important to them. But Jacob, he said, the house of God is important to me. And it's so important to me that I'm going to change the location from Luz, almond tree, and I'm going to call it Bethel, the house of God. Question for you and I. Is the house of God important to you? Is it important to me? Or are we more concerned about almond trees? Are we more concerned about the things of this world than we are the things of God. Jacob was not like that. When he had an encounter with the presence of the Lord, you know, he, he, he's, he's going through loneliness and hopelessness and helplessness, helplessness and banishment. He thought he left God behind. And all of a sudden he has this experience, this encounter with the presence of God himself. He's full of fear. He knows God is there. He said, I didn't know God was there, but he's here. And when you come here this morning, you may be sitting there saying, I don't know God's here. But He's here. You may not be aware of that reality that God is, is here in your mind, your senses. You're not, you don't see God. But I want to tell you something. God's here. You are His house now. But how, how important is the house of God to you? How important are the things of God to you? It was so important to Jacob, the presence of God, in the house of God. That he was willing to change the name from an almond tree to Bethel, the house of God. I want to be this kind of Christian. I don't want to be a Luz Christian. Where the house of God doesn't mean anything to me. That all my pursuits in life are about the world, about physical things, about material things. And 
I really don't care about the house of God anymore. But not Jacob. Jacob said, this is the house of God. This is where God is. This is the place where He should be worshipped. I'm coming in the presence of God. It's important to me. So important to me. I'm going to change the name. And show you by changing the name that this place is more important to me than an almond tree. It's sacred. It's where I go to meet God. It's where, where I go to worship God. The house of God is important to me. Not, not just the presence of God, but the house of God. Because I'm going to find the presence of God in the house of God. You're not going to find Him in Walmart. You say God is everywhere. I know that. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about His manifest presence to you as a believer. You're not going to find God. You're going to find God in the house of God. You're going to find God in the church. And is it so important in your life? Is it, is it the priority in your life? It is it the priority in my life, the house of God? That I'll look at, at the situation, I'll look at the, pray, the place and say, you know what? God is there and I didn't know it. And it must become important to me. It must become a place that is the priority of my life. Because I don't want to be a Luz Christian. I want to be a Bethel Christian. I want to be the kind of Christian that desires to worship God, that desires to go to church. I don't want to be a Luz Christian. I don't want to, I don't want to call it Luz anymore. I don't want to call the place where I worship God. I don't want to call the place where I find God. I don't want to, I don't want to call that place just an almond tree anymore. I want to elevate it in my heart and elevate it in my life and make it the place that it should be. And that means a priority, a commitment that I need to go to the house of God because that's where the presence of God is going to be. And some of us today, you know, if you're a loves Christian and all this is to you is just an almond tree, If it, all it is to me is an almond tree, I need to say, you know what? No, it's Bethel. This is where I'm going to find God. I want God. I want His presence. And the house of God speaks of worshiping God. Amen? I, I think a lot of times people don't go to church because they don't find anything there. Oh, they might find some things. They might find more trouble, more problems. They might have all this, you know... But is God there? Jacob says God's there. And because God is there, it's important to me. Because God's there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the name. He's so important to me, I'm going to change the name from calling it Luz to calling it Bethel, the house of God. That's where I find God. Didn't expect to, but that's where I found Him. So we see this man, he has a desire to worship God. He has a desire to make a commitment to the house of God. I'm going to ask you again as you sit there. And I don't want you just to hear me talking. I don't want you just to hear words. I'm asking you today to let the Spirit of God take His Word and talk to you in your heart. How important is church to you? How important is the house of God to me? Is it somewhere way down on the list, you know, and, and when it's convenient, then I'll go? If, I, if I'm that kind of Christian, I'm a loves Christian. 
But if I'm the kind of Christian that will change the name of the, of the place, and to me it's no longer just a place of an almond tree, this is where I'm going to meet with God. This is where angels are going to move. This is where the presence of God is going to be manifested in my life. I have a desire to worship Him. He's God. This is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. I've got to make Him a priority in my life. I've got to make His, His house a priority in my life. It can't be second place. And notice what happened. I mean, obviously you would think, and you know that if this man is helpless, hopeless, lonely, and banished, and he felt he's left God behind, all of a sudden he's got angels attending to him, and the presence of God is there, of course there was, this would mean something to him in that condition. And it was so important to him. That encounter with God was so important to him. He said, I'm going to make this a priority in my life. It's not going to be Luz to me. It's going to be Bethel. It's going to be a place, a sacred place to me. And not only that, but he goes on, he says this, he even starts making vows. And Jacob vowed to vow. Not only is the house of God important to him and priority to him, but now he makes a vow to God. Which now, basically, when you have somebody making vows to God, what they're doing is they're making a commitment to serve the Lord. So not only is the house of God important to Jacob, but his desire to serve God, to make vows, to make promises to God. I'm going to serve you, God. I'm making a commitment to you. I'm making a promise to you. I'm making a vow to you. He vowed to vow. And he said, if God will be with me. And when you read that, if God, you almost come across with the reading thinking that Jacob's kind of doubting if God's going to be with him. No, no. The word if there should be read since. Because God has already told him. God has already appeared to him. God has already said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back home. He's already, God has already made promises to him that he'd be with him. This is not a doubt in Jacob's mind. He's not saying, well, if God keeps his part of the bargain, I'll keep mine. No, he's saying, since God, I believe God is with me. Do you believe? Listen, I want you to get into the book. I need to get in the book. Do I, do I discern the presence of God is in this place right now? This is the house of God? Is it a priority to my life? Get in the book. If it is, then it's going to change my the way I look at church. It's going to change the way I serve Him. I'm going to make a commitment to Him. A promise to Him. It affected Jacob's life. said, so God is with me. How many of y'all believe God's with you? He said, since God is with me, I'm going to make this vow. If God be with me or since God is with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, God's going to provide for me. He's with me. His presence with me. And he's, he's going to provide for me, which God has already promised Him. He'll make a promise. As, he go, as I go, He'll give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. He's going to provide for me. Notice verse 21. So that I come again to my father's house in peace, 
then shall the Lord be my God. I'm going to make a commitment to Him to serve Him because He's going to be with me and He's going to provide for me. And I'm going to make a confession. I'm going to profess that the Lord is my God. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are saying Jesus is your God. There's people that call Jesus Lord, but that, when they say Jesus is Lord, they just think about Him being Master. The Master in their life. The Boss. Jesus is not just the Master. He's not just the Boss. The Lord is my God. When you say Lord Jesus Christ, you're saying when, you, when, you, when that comes out of your mouth, you're water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're telling everybody that Jesus is God. He is the Lord. Jacob said, He's going to be with me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to lead me uh, back to this land. I'm making a promise. He said, Then shall the Lord be my God. Again, the word then, sort of like it's conditional. No, no. He knows that the Lord is his God. In verse 22, <clears throat> in this stone, which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee the tenth unto thee. So not only he said, is this God that I've just come in contact with, this one who's the gate of heaven, this one who deserves to be worshipped, this one that I thought I left behind that, but is everywhere, and the one who's come and made promises to me, He's my God. And I'm going to make another commitment. I'm going to bring my tithe to Him. This is the second time in the book of Genesis that the tithe is recorded. And in case you don't know what the word tithe means, and I think most people do, but tithe means 10%. And this is the second time in the first book of the Bible that it's mentioned. It was mentioned in Genesis 14 when Abraham brought tithes to Melchizedek. Now Jacob, in the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis, makes a commitment to bring 10% of everything that he has to God. That means when he gets over to Laban's house, and Laban's going to change his wages 10 times. Laban's going to trick him out of his, his wages 10 times. But he's going to keep bringing his tithes. And you're going to see as a result of of this man's commitment to God to bring his tithes through that 20 years, even though he was cheated, in the end, God's going to step in supernaturally and pay him for, for what he was shorted by Laban. You're going to see it. God's going to work a miracle for him. Even though a man's going to rip him off, even though a man's going to change his wages ten times, in the end of the story, God's going to intervene and work a miracle for him so that when he goes back home, he's going to be full. So this shows you, Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, this shows you, some people say, well, tithing is under the law. And... We're not under the law now, and so we don't need to bring the tithe to God. This was done hundreds of years, approximately 400 years before the Mosaic Covenant or the law was ever given to Moses. 
The tithe is something that was practiced and done before the law was ever given. Amen. It's brought over in the New Testament in the Melchizedek priesthood and Hebrews 5 through 7 teaches us. Amen. So if when a person really gets where they need to be in God, when, when they get where the house of God is important to them, where they, when they get to a place where they want to really serve God, they'll start making promises to God. You're going to be my God. You told me you'd be with me. You told me you'd provide for me. And as a result of that promise, I'm going to bring my tithe to you. Amen? When people really get real, get serious with God, the house of God becomes important to them. When they get really serious with God, they start making commitments and vows to Him. When they get serious with God, they bring their tithe to God. It is an honor to bring your tithe to God. It's an honor. You don't, you don't have to. People have this idea, I have to bring my tithe to God. You don't, are you kidding me? You can keep it if you want to. It doesn't belong to you, but you can keep it. But when you really have an encounter with God, when you really have an experience with God, you're going to say, God, you're my God. You're my provider. You're going to give me bread to eat. You're going to give me raiment to put on. See, He sees where all of it comes from. He sees where the raiment comes from, the bread comes from, the blessings come from. He sees that it comes from God. And He makes a commitment right there that He's going to bring a tithe to the Lord. I can be honest with you, church, as I stand before you serving the Lord a few years, a little over 30 years, just that's a few years. I can, I can tell you in all honesty, that's never been my problem. Bringing the tithe has never been my problem. Even as 18, 19 years of age, 20 years of age, you know, before I got married, limited income, I'm not even going to get into that. Just, just enjoyed bringing the tithe to God. I enjoy it. I still enjoy it today. It's not something that's grievous to me. It's not something that's hard for me to do. I love it. I enjoy it. It's an opportunity that I have. When you get real with God, His house becomes important to you. Your service to Him becomes important to you. His Lordship in your life becomes important to you. You're bringing your tithe to Him becomes important to you. Tithing is something that's only the beginning. It's not limited. You're not limited to just bring your tithe. I'm not limited just to bring my tithe. The Bible talks about offerings that you can bring that that you add to the tithe, offerings that you add to the 10%. Offerings. So I'm just saying to you, some people have this idea that the tithe is the end. The tithe is only the beginning. I'm not, I'm not preaching this because I want your money. We've seen what God can do. We've seen what God can do. This church has seen what God can do supernaturally. 
Are y'all with me? We're in a process right now of refurbishing and, and upgrading this church from, from the head to the toe. I mean, from the top to the bottom, all the way across this, this vast complex. All by the provision of God. All, all, not because I had to stand up and beg for money or do, do, you know, dinners and sell dinners and peanut brittle. We've seen the mighty manifestation of God. We've seen God's faithfulness. We've seen God providing. We've seen that God is with us. Amen? When you really get real with God, when you really have an experience with God, His house becomes important. Your service to Him becomes important. Your giving becomes important to you. And you can't wait to bring your time. And you can't wait to bring your offering. And you can't wait to serve Him. You'd be surprised how many people, they find out at church, you know, you can go to a church and they don't ask you to vacuum the floor, or they don't ask you to clean outside. As soon as they find that out, man, if it's their month to do all of that, it's kind of interesting how they'll quit, leave one church and go to another when it's their month to do all of that. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I'm saying sometimes I've seen it as a pastor and I've watched this. You know, if they're already in the tipping point, they're about ready to go over and make that decision. It, it, you, you, sometimes it happens right at that month that they are responsible to serve God. I'm not as dumb as I look. But when you get real with God, his house is important because God is there. Amen? I want to serve Him. I make commitments to Him. His Lordship in my life. Amen? It's not just a mundane thing. It's not just an almond tree thing to me. This is, this is where I find God. This is where I worship God. I'm blessed. He's my provider. He's with me. And I recognize that. And I get to bring my tithe, said Jacob. I want to. I make that commitment. I make that vow to God. We'll see as, it, as we go through his life, you're going to see the results of that. As I said, Laban is going to change his wages ten times. But Laban's not in control of his income. God is. And Jacob will keep tithing and keep tithing and keep tithing and at the end of it, supernatural, a supernatural miracle takes place for him to be blessed. So the question is, we look at Jacob's life leaving home hopeless, helpless, banished, thinking he left God behind. I don't know what he brought with him. He didn't bring much with him. He had to, you know, lay on the ground, make a pillow out of a rock. He didn't have much to offer. But God appears to him and said, I'm going to give you all this land. Look around. I'll give you all this land. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bring you back home. And you're going to go in peace. And all these things just, and I, you know, Jacob recognizes what God is doing for him. Amen? It's, let me just say this to you. It's a privilege and it's an honor to serve the Lord. It is a privilege and an honor to bring our tithes unto the Lord. It, 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 it should create a joy in your heart. And you say, well, I can't afford to. You can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. 
So again, as I go forward, the tithe is not the limit of our giving. You get to bring even more than a tithe. Look at your name and say, I get to bring more than a tithe. I get to bring offerings too. What a privilege. What an honor. That I could come to the house of God and when I come to the house of God, I don't appear before Him empty-handed. I bring something to the King. You know? And i got to be careful, and you do too, sometimes when you come to the house of the Lord. I don't know. Maybe you're tired. I get tired sometimes. Maybe you don't feel good. We all go through those kind of things. But when we come to the presence of the King, we've got to watch our countenance too. It was against the law for you to come to the presence of the King with a sad face. It was against the law. You'd be put to death if you walked in the presence of the King in that culture with a sad face. You need to tell your face, and I need to tell my face sometime. How are you going to come in the presence of the King? You going to come with all sad, depressed face and sit there all day? I'm going to tell you something. We're in the presence of a great king, a mighty king. Hallelujah. When I come to him, I, I should be bringing some praise and some worship. I should lift up my countenance. I should come in faith. I should come to honor him. Amen. Praise the Lord. And not come empty-handed. Do, do not come empty-handed. God's supernatural blessing will be upon your life. So you see the kind of commitment? You either have a Luz Christian or you have a Bethel Christian. Is it an almond tree or is it the house of God? I want to be the kind of Christian that makes commitments and makes promises and, and keeps them and lives by them and walks with this God and serves Him. The house of God is important to me. So after this encounter with the Lord, I want, you to, I want you to get the picture because when he first showed up there, it was the sun was setting. It was dark in his life. Hopeless, helpless, banished, lonely. Traveled 70 miles, probably like some of us the way we come to church. You know? Something happened. He wasn't dragging his feet after this encounter with God. And I know, I know, see, that's why we need God so desperately because we come to the house, man, we... You know, my wife used to get on to me when I first married her. I don't know where I got this, you know, but I'd, I'd, I'd uh, walk with my boots, you know, and I'd drag my boots on the ground. You know what I'm saying? I'd drag my shoes. Man, you look at the bottom of my heels, they're all wore out, you know. I mean, just strange. And, and they're wore out in strange places. They're not wore out like normal people's boots, you know. And, and my wife would get on to me. She'd say, would you quit dragging your feet? I mean, nicely. Well, I wasn't even noticing it, you know. I didn't, I just, you know what I'm saying? Well, that, that's what happened to Jacob when he first showed up at that place. Man, he's dragging his feet, boy. He was really down. Things weren't going very well for him. And all of a sudden, after this encounter with God, and after he makes these awesome commitments to God, 
The Bible says, verse 1 of chapter 29, Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. It says, Then Jacob, then takes you back to Bethel. But the next part, went on his journey, can be translated, he lifted up his feet. That's what the literal Hebrew means. He lifted up his feet. He's no longer dragging his feet in life. You ever been there? You ever feel like that sometimes? No? That was Jacob. That's where he was. Helpless, hopeless, lonely, banished. Not, you know, just kind of depressed, kind of down. Until he has this encounter with God. And when he meets with God, he lifts up his feet. He's no longer dragging his feet. He's energized. He's strengthened by the presence of the Lord. That energy, that strength, that power of God is in his life. So now he's not just dragging his feet through life, you know. But he's lifting up his feet. He's got new vitality, new strength, new energy to go and to live. He's got to travel another 400 miles. He's only traveled 70 miles. He's got a long ways to go. He needs some strength. Listen, church, we got a ways to go. We're not there yet. And, and some, of us, some of us get tired and we get weary. Hallelujah in the journey. But thank God that we can come into His presence. And, and when we come into His presence, He energizes us and gives us power and gives us strength so that we're no longer dragging through life, but we're lifting up our feet with new vitality, with new strength, with new energy. Amen. First time I ever preached that. And I'm not preaching that just today. That one part. I'm preaching the whole today, not the part. But I preached that in a youth conference years ago before I ever started pastoring. They asked me to preach in this youth. It wasn't a conference, excuse me. It was a youth rally. See, I don't want to, I don't want to make it too big. <laughs> so that's the way we get sometimes. We talk about youth rallies. We turn them into youth conferences. It wasn't quite that big. It was a sectional rally, you know, where people from different churches gather together and it's called Youth Rally in the section. And so, uh, amen, they gathered all these young people and I got off work. And I was, you know, in those days I was working for a living. I don't work for a living anymore. But in those days, I was working for a living. And uh, my wife, you know, she drove while I took my Bible in hand. And I did the best I could to prepare the night before. And, you know, take it, she's driving me like a taxi cab all the way. I don't even remember where this place was. Eh? Uh, Big Lake or somewhere, you know, out there somewhere in no man's land. You know. And I got off work. My little wife drove me to that place so I could preach that little youth rally. And got pulled on the pulled over on the way by the police. You know, you've had a long day at work. You got to preach the youth rally. You know, what I'm saying, and here I'm out. Got my Bible in my hand over there in the in the seat, the pastor's seat, studying and reading. And, and my wife gets pulled over. What a day! Man, I needed the message I was going to preach that night. And the officer looked into the car. Uh, I guess you know. Anyway. And I guess he saw me reading my Bible. I don't know. And he let us go. Amen. 
And I promise you, when I stood up in that pulpit, in that little church, I could really preach that message that night. Amen. Now that God can lift up your feet. And I know it blessed them. I could tell by the way they responded to the message. It blessed them. But you go through life, man. Don't you get tired? You go through life sometimes. Don't you feel like just dragging your feet? Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that you can go to the house of God? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord when my feet are dragging, you know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't lift. My feet don't have much energy, much strength, much power to go on. And then, I, and then having an encounter with God. And I got the vitality and the strength and the power to go on. Because I want to tell you something, church. I still have a ways to go. I haven't arrived to my destiny yet, and you haven't either. So I need those encounters with God. Hallelujah. He takes my feet so I don't wear out my heels anymore. Lift up your feet in the name of Jesus. Lift up your feet. Have an encounter with God. Amen. What are we going to do? Are we tired now? Are you going to quit? Are you going to give up? No, you're going to get in the presence of God. And He's going to give you what you need. We got a testimony this morning from Sister G. God's provision in her life. God's presence in her life. His deliverance. His help. Are you with me today? When that happens to you, when that comes to you, when God comes to you like that, you lift up your feet. You're no longer dragging your heels through life. Praise God. God is real. So it says, then, points back to Bethel, went, Jacob went on his journey, lifted up his feet. He's a different man what he was before. Got some energy, got some strength, got some vitality, hallelujah, about him. He's made some commitments to God, some promises to God, to live for God, to serve God, to make the house of God in the priority in his life, to bring his tithes to the Lord. And as a result of that, he just, he's flying high. He's doing good, but he's still not home yet. And God's got some things to teach him. Some more things to teach him about the birthright. He's got to get some stuff out of him. You know, maybe maybe that just a little bit, because it's not completely out of him yet, maybe part of his motivation making that place a priority in his life, the house of God, and part of his motivation, maybe in vow and vows, maybe there was a little bit of an incomplete sincerity in him. Maybe, this maybe, because I know Jacob at this point, maybe he was making a deal with God. He said, you do this for me, you know. Okay, you'll be my God. Yeah, just, just maybe, just maybe he's got a little bit of an ulterior motive in going to church. Maybe just a little bit of ulterior motive in making commitments like that to God. Maybe just a little ulterior motive to bring his tithes. Maybe what he's going to get out of it. But I promise you at the end of the story, after 20 years, when you see him after 20 years, you're going to see a changed man. Because God's going to get some of that stuff out of him. If there's any, if there's any guile in him, if there's any impurity in his motives, after 20 years, when you see him after 20 years, you're going to see a changed man. Amen? But nonetheless, he's energized. Aren't you thankful to God that does, God does that for you? So he makes it, lifts up his feet, and 
Are you? Can you imagine this in one verse? You talk about traveling at the speed of sound, man. The speed of even light. In one verse, he's five hundred miles. Lifted up his feet. Boom! He's there. Amen. It's amazing how when you really make commitments to God, it really you serve it. You know, maybe when you first do there's some little ulterior motives, but because of the grace of God and the mercy of God, He just promises to bless you and to provide for you. And all of a sudden, you don't deserve it. In one verse, you go travel 500 miles. 400 anyway. If you, if you listen to me, if you live for God, if you live hard for God, that old saying, if you live hard for God, it'll be easy. If you live easy for God, it will be hard. Lift up your feet. Before you realize it, you'll be there. He went from Bethel all the way to Haran. 400 miles or better. In one verse. That's pretty quick. God can do more for you in one verse than you can do for yourself all of your life. You spend your life trying to make it happen. You spend your life trying to accumulate. You spend your life. One verse is all it took to get him from Bethel to Haran. One verse. That's it. Boy, you're really reading into the Scripture, Pastor. No, it's there. Because when you, you find him in Bethel, in the next verse, boom, he's in Haran after having lifted up his feet. It's there. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say it again. God can do more for me in a second than I can do it for myself all my life. So he comes into the land of the east in chapter 29, verse 1, and this is where he's going to get his wives. He's going to get two of them. Which I wouldn't say that's a good thing. <laughs> but he is. He's going to end up with two. The providence of God just at work again. He's going to show up in the land of the east, and guess what's going to happen? He's going to go to a well. When he gets to a well, he's going to find a bunch of shepherds around the well with their sheep. He's going to ask them, Hey, do you know Laban? Yeah, we know Laban. How is he? He's doing good. Hey, by the way, that's Rachel. That's his daughter fixing to come up to the well right there. Really? Wow. It all just happened, didn't it? He happened to show up at a well where there were shepherds that knew Laban, his uncle, and... It just happened when he showed up at the well that here comes Rachel, his future wife. It just happened, didn't it? Called the providence of God. Hmm. The providence of God works for you. Puts you at the right place at the right time as long as you're faithful to Him. If Jacob hadn't lifted up his feet... If Jacob hadn't done what he was supposed to do, if Jacob had got out of the will of God in his life, the providence of God would not have worked for him. It would have worked against him. What I'm trying to show you, there is a providence of God in your life where God takes control over time and takes 
control over situations and people and places and, and works on your behalf, but you have to be in the journey. You have to be faithful. You have to be the one making the commitments. You have to be the one walking with God. And when you do, God's going to open this door and He'll open that door and He'll do this for you and do that for you. And you think this is, an, this is luck. It has nothing to do with luck. As you were walking in His will, His providence worked for you. Didn't just happen. And he shows up, and I'm not going to read all the verses because I don't have a lot of time. But he shows up and he sees these shepherds. They all they knew Laban, and, and here comes Rachel with her sheep. She's a shepherdess. Some people say, I don't believe in women pastors. You don't know the Bible. She's a woman shepherd. She's a shepherdess. That's not unusual. In that culture, it's, it's normal. It's usual to have a, a woman as a shepherdess. Here she comes with her sheep. But we got a problem because there's a big old rock on top of the well. And people have to move that rock off the well and give water to the sheep. This big old rock sitting on top of it. And here comes Jacob. He starts talking to the, to the shepherd. The shepherds, they know Laban. They say, there's Rachel, that's his daughter. He says, well, okay, what are you doing here? Let's water the sheep. Get on with it. Water your sheep and go on. Water your sheep. Get out in the pasture and feed them. wonder why he was wanting them to move off so quickly. <laughs> Rachel's coming with her sheep. Her name means sheep. Her, main, her name means you, lamb. And here she comes. He wants to spend a little time with this girl. Now remember, he's a 75-year-old man. Are y'all with me? She's probably, at the oldest, she's in her early 20s. But, okay. Read the story. You'll see what I'm saying is true. Now, he tells the shepherd, come on, get your water, get your, get your sheep water, go out in the field, and let's get this done, let's get this on the way, come on, come on. Well, you know what he wants to do. He wants to spend that time by himself with Rachel. You've never been in those situations, have you? When there's some people around and you want to be alone with somebody, you say, hey, okay, well, see you. <laughs> what are you waiting around for? Okay, we, we, we're done here, we're done here. <laughs> well, that's Jacob. And then you got these shepherds, you know, around the, around the well. These shepherds, they want to hear, they want to check it out. They want to see what's going on. You know what I'm saying? They're nosy. You know what I'm saying? He said, I don't read that in the Bible. That, well, that's what's going on in the story. Jacob's trying to shoo them off and they want to hang around. So they start debating with Jacob why they need to hang around instead of go off and drink the water and go off in the field, you know. And, and the shepherds win the argument. They get to stay around. They get to hear, you know, what happens. And, amen. They get to stay around. They win the argument. But old Jacob walks over there. Man, I want to tell you something. A 75-year-old man, this man could lift some weights. Because this rock that was on top of the well is not some little old thing. This was a humongous stone. And these shepherds win the argument. They get to stay. But here comes Rachel. Old Jacob, he starts... He gets inspired by beauty. Amen? You know... I was in a gym one time 
and really all of a sudden this, this older man said, you know, talking about Jeremiah, he was over there doing some um, ab crunchers. And he said, that this old man said, now there's a, a girl walked in. He goes, now watch him. Now watch what he does. He's really going to get with it now. <laughs> you know, it's amazing what, what a girl will do to a guy. All of a sudden, man, hallelujah. Yo, busting blood veins out of your eyes trying to lift something. <laughs> Praise the Lord. They don't even know who, they don't even pay attention to you. We're going to, Oh, anyway, they could reach down there and get that big old rock, man, just moves it out of the way. <laughs> Hallelujah. And the shepherds get to see it, but guess what? He did it for Rachel, so they lose their place in line. They got to hang around, but they lost their place in line because Rachel comes up and she gets the water of the sheep. You know, Jack, Jacob's inspired. Well, let me just ask you a question. If we get inspired, you women get inspired by men, and men get inspired by women, why can't we get inspired for Jesus Christ? Come on, inspiration. Hallelujah. We think it all comes from God. When God hits me, I'm going to get inspired. When God comes down and God touches me, then I'm going to get into it. I'm going to tell you something. Inspiration is not always when God comes down and hits you. Inspiration is because you know God is here right now. And I, because Jesus is here. I'm inspired. I'm inspired to move some rocks. I'm inspired to take some rocks off of a well so the sheep can drink. If I get, if I can get inspired, if Jacob could get inspired because of a female coming on the scene. How much more should you and I be inspired this morning? Because Jesus Christ is here. The Lord is here. Let Him be my inspiration above all things. Amen. Rachel, here she comes with her sheep, a shepherdess. She's beautiful. The Bible says she's beautiful. Okay, seriously. I mean, she's... The Bible tells us she's, she's just beautiful. Her figure's beautiful. She's just beautiful. Here she comes with her sheep. And she's not only be beautiful, but she's busy. Okay. And once again, she's connected to water, just like Rebecca, her mama. When Eliezer went to get a bride for Isaac, Rebecca was going down into the well and drawing water and getting water for the camels and getting water for Eliezer. And how we, we see... Rebecca coming. She's got her sheep. She's a shepherdess. She's busy. She works. She's a hard worker. And she's beautiful. Bringing her sheep to a place where they can get something to drink. Let the sheep drink. Let them drink. Jacob rolls that big stone off of there. Rachel so Rachel can bring her sheep to drink. Verse 9, And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Wow. Inspired. You know what I think we need sometimes? You know, we talk about, we need to pray. We need, we do. We need to pray. We need to come to church. We need to bring our tithes and offerings to God. But, but something, sometimes when we come to church, we need to get inspired. We need some inspiration. Hallelujah. Inspiration. Are you inspired? Do you make up your mind to be inspired today by the Lord? Are you inspired today? Is your inspiration creating a little perspiration? Amen. See, we talk about anointing. I thank God for anointing. But God's promised me He would anoint me. You notice when I get up here and I pray church, sometimes I'll pray, I don't pray, God anoint us. I pray, God inspire us. God give me inspiration so I can preach your word. Your anointing's there, but I need inspiration. Jacob was inspired by the beauty of Rachel. Let me be inspired by the beauty of the Lord. Give me inspiration to preach. Not just anointing, but inspiration. Let your people be inspired. He's great. He's the lover of your soul. He's better than 10,000. Hallelujah. God help me as your, as your pastor to be like Jacob, to be so inspired by the Lord Jesus Christ that I'll take the rock off the water so the sheep can drink. Because you're thirsty. You're thirsty. That's why I pray for inspiration. The anointing is going to be there. I don't, I don't worry about anointing. But am I inspired? Amen. And the Bible says, Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. You can go through the Scripture and you see kisses of betrayal. I won't get into all of these. Just study the, the word kiss and you're going to see kisses of betrayal, kisses of the harlot before she takes your morality away. You can kiss, see the kisses of a betrayer named Judas Iscariot. You can see Jacob kissing his daddy Isaac as he deceived him. And when he kisses his daddy, his daddy Isaac thinks it's Esau kissing him. It was a kiss of deception. You go through the Bible and you're going to see it. Now we see another kiss. And this kiss is, now it's nothing, there's nothing bad about it. I'm just telling you so you know, he's not a teenage boy. He's 75 years of age. At least he's going to marry the right one. He's going to marry a believer. And the providence of God has led him to this place as he stays in the will of God. But he kisses her. But you need to understand something here. When he kissed her, it's not a big old, you know, what you might call a big old smooch. Not one of those kind. There's nothing. Does that bother you when I talk like that? If I don't explain it to you, then what in the world are you going to... You, okay, you don't under, okay, those of you who don't understand smooch, lift your hand. I'll go a little further if you don't understand smooch. Do you understand kiss on the lips? Anybody? Under, lift your hand. You, I command you to lift your hand. You know what kiss on the lips means? Anybody here? Yeah, yeah, you act like you don't. I could go further, but I want. 
in description. But I'm not. But that's not the kind of kiss here. When Jacob kisses her, it's one kiss. The word here in the Hebrew means it was one kiss. And it, and it wasn't that kind of kiss, if you know what I mean. It was a, a peck on the cheek. Just a, just a greeting, basically. He kisses her on the cheek. Maybe kisses her on the shoulder. Just some, that's it. Nothing more than that. There was nothing. There was nothing more than that. Okay. And I'm telling you that for a reason. Because when Laban greets him, Laban kisses him. It's a different word. It's just one right after another. You understand? But you see, now listen carefully. Jacob has respect for. Rachel. And he only kisses her out of respect on her cheek. That's as far as it goes. Amen. He kisses her on the cheek. He lifts up his voice. He weeps with emotion. What's the emotion about? He's traveled 500 miles. And seen... Rebecca hasn't seen Laban for 80 years. He's 75 years of age. He, 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 he's come, he, this is his family. He sees a beautiful girl that he, that he desires to be his wife. He's coming empty-handed, under, unlike Eliezer. When Eliezer was going to bring uh, a dowry for Rebecca, the same location, by the way, that Eliezer found Rebecca for Isaac, is where Jacob is. But he doesn't have anything. He just lifts up. He's full of emotion. He starts crying. I will tell you this. The same way he greeted Rachel, kissed her, and he wept, is the same way she will depart. When she departs, he will lift up his voice and he will weep. When he met her, he wept. When she died, he wept. When she entered, he wept. When she departed, he wept. The Bible tells us she's the one he wants. This is his first cousin. This is, he is her first cousin. They're related. It's basically a believer meeting a believer. The Bible says, it's full of emotion. I don't totally understand what the emotion is about, but it overwhelmed him. I can say this. So maybe some of the emotion wasn't just because he had come, finally made his trip to his destiny, and he's in the presence of family members and the future wife. But maybe he's weeping because God has kept His promise to him. God told him he'd be with him and God told him he'd provide for him and God told him he'd give him food and God told him he'd give him raiment and God told him he would go and make his destiny and God told him he'd bring him back. And just like God had promised, God kept his promise. Maybe that's dawning on him. Maybe that's hitting his heart about how faithful God has been to him. That very promise that God made, that God has kept that promise. It's coming to pass. He, maybe he recognized the providence of God that took him to that very well. That brought him into the presence of shepherds that knew Laban. And all of a sudden, his daughter shows up just at the right time. Maybe it all dawned on him that this was God 
God keeping His promise. He's overwhelmed with emotion. You don't know why people cry when they come to church. And so he begins, now listen carefully. You know, really, relationships in the church between believers, a girl and a boy, or a man and a woman, if they would be done this way, be less trouble. With a simple kiss out of respect, a simple greeting, nothing more than that. And then when Jacob shows up as the guy, What does he do? Out of respect, he kisses her on the cheek. And not only that, but he's an honorable man because he starts telling her who he is. There's no vagueness in Jacob. Jacob, the Bible says, told Rebecca that he was his, her father's brother, which means relative, which is nephew, and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her daddy. Do you see that? When Jacob meets her and greets her and introduces himself to her, he doesn't come vaguely. He doesn't hide who he is. He tells her, this is who I am. She doesn't need to find out later. Right off at the start, Jacob shows respect and Jacob tells her who he is. There's no vagueness here in communication. Things are not hidden. They're going to be found out later. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the next thing we notice after he does that, the Bible says that Rachel runs to her daddy. See, a lot of times when young people find, young girls find that their guy, their guy's real vague and don't show much respect to them. And when young girls find their guy, a lot of times they're going to run from daddy. But not this woman of God. This woman of God doesn't run from daddy when she finds her guy. She runs to daddy when she finds her guy. I'm just telling you, if these things would be followed, there'd be a lot less trouble. The guy would be up front, be respectful to her. And then she in return respects the parental authority that's over her and runs to them when she finds her guy instead of runs from them. These are important things. She ran and told her father, and it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him. Look at the enthusiasm, the excitement, the energy that's put forth. Laban runs to Jacob, the Bible says, and embraced him and kissed him. The word kiss here is different from the word kiss where Jacob kissed Rachel. It's a kiss that's repetitive. It's just, he just, and it's still on the cheek. But it's just one kiss after another on the cheeks. So happy to see him after so long a time. Brought him into the house and, and he told Laban all things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. He abode with him 
the space of a month. I mean, what hospitality. That Laban, his uncle, Rebecca's brother, brings him into the house and for a solid month takes care of him. Hospitality in the household. Verse 15, it's going to be a long-term stay. It's not going to be just a month stay. It's going to be a long-term stay. But he was there for a month and they were feasting. They were celebrating. They were having a good time for one month. It's not going to be temporary, so we've got to make some arrangements here. And so, Jacob, you're going, to, you're going to need to work. You're going to need to work. Look at your neighbor and say, you're going to need to work. The only one that don't work is the pastor. You're going to need to work, and we recognize that. And so, Laban says, all right, it's not a temporary arrangement. You're going to have to stay here for a while. And uh, so here we go. Verse 15, Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for not? Tell me what shall thy wages be. He said, you're going to be working for me, but I want to pay you for it. She didn't have this idea. Well, he's a family member. He worked for free. Now, if you're my son, you do. Not really. You know what I mean. But this is a nephew. So he said, all right, you're going to need to work, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a, an agreement with you, and I'm going to pay you to work. So Jacob, tell me what you want. What's the wages? What do you require? And here's what Jacob says. He's got his eye on Rachel. I would say it's commendable that Laban says what he says. I'm going to pay you, even though you're family. I'm still going to pay you. Don't you know you got to be careful with family deals? Wait, listen to me carefully. Everybody understand what I'm saying? You got to be careful with family deals. I'm saying it's at least commendable that Laban would say, I'm going to pay for you. It's not right for me not to pay you for what you do. That's commendable. So, what do you want, Laban? Verse 16 says, had two daughters. The name of the elder was who? Leah. She's older. She's the oldest. The name of the youngest, Rachel. What does Leah mean? What does Rachel mean? Well, number one, we find out she's the older daughter, Leah. The younger daughter is Rachel, correct? Well, Leah means cow. Cow. Now, don't take it like that. It means cow. It, it, it means that she's a strong woman. She's a strong woman. And then the Bible talks about her eyes. It doesn't say she had cow's eyes. But if she, if her names mean cow and she's strong and it talks about her eyes, maybe, well, no, she didn't have cow's eyes because cow's eyes are beautiful eyes. You ever seen a big old cow's eye? Big old cow, beautiful cow. Big, big old eyes and cows, man. My son-in-law, he used to do 4-H. He can tell you about cow's eyes. You know what I mean? But anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. But, but her name means cow. She's strong. It can also mean weary. It means a lot of different things. It can mean weary, which means that 
Possibly she's been crying and weeping and been weary because she, as the eldest daughter, is possibly thinking that she's going to have to marry the elder son Esau. That's what Jewish commentators say. They say she didn't want to marry Esau, so she cried all the time. Do I have to, Mama? But, it, but if it means that she's strong or whatever, or if it means that she's weary, we don't totally know why. But it also can mean fullness or to be filled. And Jewish commentators say that, that she was filled with knowledge and wisdom. She was, she was more suitable for Jacob's spiritual life than Rachel was. She was full of wisdom and knowledge. But whatever her name means. And then we have Rachel. Rachel's the younger sister, the Bible says. And Rachel means sheep or an ewe lamb. E-W-E. Ewe. Ewe. <laughs> have a problem with that word. Ewe. It's connected to her, what she does. She's a shepherdess. She works with sheep. So they call her Rachel. And the Bible says, but, you know, also some people say, Jewish scholars say, that her name is also connected to a prophetic anointing. Rachel. So if Leah is weary, if Leah is strong, if Leah is uh, full of wisdom and knowledge, Rachel has a prophetic spirit upon her head. She's a shepherdess, is what Jewish scholars say. But the Bible gives us a little bit more information about the, these two. Verse 18, Jacob loved who? Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. But the Bible says, he makes a deal. Verse 17, back up. Leah was tender-eyed. Well, if she was a cow, maybe she had cow's eyes, but really, to have cow's eyes is a good thing. But there's a contrast here, verse 17. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. There's a contrast here. So when you see Leah, Leah the older one, she's not as good-looking as Rachel is. The Bible says Rachel's better-looking than Leah. The Bible says Rachel was beautiful and she was well-figured. It means her body was formed beautifully. Okay? But what it says about Leah is she was tender-eyed. Now, again, when you start talking about what these words tender mean, some people say, well, tender-eyed means that she had pretty eyes. Some people even say she had pretty blues. I don't know. Some people interpret that tender eye to mean beautiful eyes, that she had beautiful eyes, but the rest of her body wasn't as good as Rachel's body. You don't know the Bible talks about stuff like that, did you? you? You didn't know the Bible said that she was beautiful and had a great body. You didn't know that, did you? That's why, you see, Jacob loved her. First time he saw her, he laid eyes on her. He loved her. Amen? Leah, she's not as... As Rachel is, and again, some people say that the eyes, that it speaks of her beauty, but really it's a contrast. I believe it's a contrast. What the Bible's saying is, she doesn't have that beautiful eye 
She doesn't have that. It, uh, basically, her eyes are dull, 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 D-U-L-L, dull. In that, in that culture, man, you ever seen those Middle Eastern women? Some of them got eyes this big around, man. You know? And they just sparkle, they shine, they got fire in them. When you looked in Rachel's eyes, they weren't big, beautiful, sparkling, on fire eyes. They were dull. One translation says she was cross-eyed. Man, that's, I think that's really reading into that word tender-eyed to say she was cross-eyed. But I promise you one thing. If she was cross-eyed and after what's about to happen to Jacob, he's going to get up, he's going to look into her eyes, you know. And when he looks into her, her eyes, he's going to say, I see confusion. And then she's going to look back at him and she's going to say, "I no, you know what? He's going to look at her and say, I'm confused. And she's going to look at him and say, I'm confused. And then he's going to say, well, we're both confused. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, if that's true that she was cross-eyed, she got one looking this way and one looking the other way, and so everybody's confused. I'm confused, you're confused, we're all confused. That's a reflection of Jacob's soul, but anyway. But, but the Bible is telling you about the physical qualities of Rachel. It is telling you about the physical qualities of Leah. Okay? I mean, basically, they're pretty much the same size. Well, it, she'll have to be because we'll find out later that if she was, you know, like her name suggested, and maybe her eyes are dull, then Jacob should have been able to tell, he, you know, she, he's got the wrong one. But, and I think their bodies were pretty much the same, you know, but just the eyes were different. Well, they were a veil, you know what I'm saying? So anyway. But God gives you these contrasts. He shows you. His, God's got a sense of humor, man. Talks about how beautiful Rachel was and how what a great body she had. And then talks about, you know, Leah. I mean, she's full. she got wisdom and everything. But her eyes looking funny. <laughs> Ooh. Amen. Jacob loved Rachel and said, here's the plan, here's the, here's the deal. I will serve seven years for her. I put so much value on her. I'll work for you for seven years. That'll be my dowry. Rachel is the younger daughter. In verse 19, Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than I should give her to another man abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days, for he loved for the love he had to her. Seven long years of waiting, waiting, and waiting, and trusting God, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, working, working, working. Seven long years. Right? He's cut the deal. The bridal arrangement, the bridal uh, agreement has been entered into. What's it going to cost? Seven years of his labor. And he's willing to pay it. And so the Bible says, verse 21, 
And seven years went by, and Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. Isn't that sad? That the arrangement, the commitment, the agreement had been entered into. Jacob said, I worked seven years for Rachel, and after seven years, he has to be the one to go and ask. See, we're starting to get a glimpse here that Laban has got some of his sister's blood in him. Remember Rebecca helped Jacob with the, the tricking? Laban's got some of that blood in him of Rebecca. So the commitment's made by Jacob, but when the time comes, Laban doesn't say, hey, here's your wife. He has to go, look at me everybody please, he has to ask Laban. And some people, the way they read the text, they say he had to go and demand it. He had to go and demand it. So Jacob has kept up his part of the bargain. But Laban won't keep his part of the bargain. Laban's the kind of person you've got to go ask him for it. Laban's the kind of person you've got to go demand him for it. They won't do it on their own. Seven long years come and gone. He's got to go and get his wife, ask for it or demand it. And verse 22, Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Normally these last for seven days and then the marriage takes place. It came to pass in the evening. Look at this. What does he do? He took Leah. Uh-oh. His daughter and brought her to him. He went in unto her. Switcheroo. Instead of Rachel, Laban gives Leah to Jacob. The tricker is being tricked. The deceiver is being deceived. Whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. He's fixing to get one pulled on him. He pulled one on his daddy along with his mother in agreement. And now it's coming back on him after seven years. Can you imagine? I told you God's got to get some stuff out of Jacob. And it's coming back on him. The tricker is going to be tricked. The deceiver is going to be deceived. Couldn't tell. Jacob couldn't tell by looking at the body that it wasn't Rachel, evidently. Either that or he drank too much. There's a veil on her face. You know? He doesn't know that Leah, the eldest, has connived with her father to trick Jacob. Jacob doesn't know that. So when Leah is presented to him, he thinks she's Rachel. I know I'm getting long-winded, but then let me finish. You could follow the storyline of how Jacob deceived his daddy and, and another relative was involved in that deception. You can see Jacob kissing his daddy and his daddy thinking it was Esau. You can see a meal was involved in the deception of Jacob. You can see a meal will be involved here. You see the elder daughter in the story. You see the elder son in the story of Isaac. You see Jacob kissing Leah when he thought 
He was kissing Rachel. You see Isaac doing the same thing. You see a father, you understand? Involved with the deception of the days of Jacob. You see now a father involved. You see a relative involved in helping. You see an elder. It's all the same. Just follow the pattern. I'm just trying to show you that what you sow, you are going to reap. And you can mark it down, walk down the line, and you can see it point by point by point by point. That what you did in life is going to come back on you. Point by point by point by point by point. There's seven specific things that Jacob did in deceiving his daddy that are repeated in him being deceived by a father. That's why you, you listen to me, friend. That's why as a Christian, as a believer, he's a believer. As a Christian, you want to make sure you're walking the walk, man, that you're doing what you're supposed to do. Because if you don't, I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about reaping. You're going to reap what you sow. You want to make sure you're sowing the right thing. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to you. Point by point by point. And it came to pass, in verse 25, as I come to a close, in that morning, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. He said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Because you did it to your daddy. You did it to your daddy, now it's coming back on you. See, he didn't discover that it was Leah that he had been kissing on and holding on, you know, holding the night and being intimate with through the night. He didn't know it was her until the next morning. He lifts the veil. He sees the eyes. He goes, I'm confused. You're confused. We're all confused. That's a reflection of my soul. Can you imagine? He goes, ah! What's this? He goes into a rage. He's been tricked. He's been deceived. He's been lied to. I've been kissing Ra Leah all night and I thought I was kissing Rachel. You did the same thing to your daddy. He thought he was kissing Esau and he was kissing you. Laban said, why did he do it? He said, well, he said, there's a custom. It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. He said, the firstborn first, then the secondborn, the younger. You know what God is doing? He's going to teach Jacob the law of the birthright. God's going to teach him the law of the birthright. Even though God promised the birthright to Jacob, which with the blessing connected to it, he still has to know the law of the birthright. The elder gets the birthright unless God changes it. And you wait on God. and You trust God to bring it about. He's going to learn the law of the birthright. So Laban says, we can't give the younger. We've got to give the firstborn to you. And you'll see when, Le when Leah starts having children in a minute, guess who she gives birth to? She's going to give birth to Reuben, who is the firstborn, has a right to the birthright as a firstborn. She's going to give birth to Levi, She's going to give birth to Judah. And Levi is the pr 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 uh, priestly 
part of the blessing. And Judah will end up being the kingly part of the blessing. All of this is to teach Jacob a very important truth about the law of the birthright. So Laban says, we've got to take care of this. To give, we can't give the younger before the what? Firstborn. Fulfill her weak. And we will give thee also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other. He said, you serve seven more years and I'll give you Rachel. Which he had already worked for seven years for Rachel. But you see Laban, he's an opportunist. He sees a way to keep, another, uh, keep a worker for another seven years. He knows that Jacob loves Rachel. And so the Bible says they enter into an agreement. Oh, and it's, it's really a polygamous thing. This agreement causes Jacob to become immoral. In fact, Leviticus 18.18, it's forbidden later in the law for, us, for uh, people to marry sisters. It is a polygamy. It's against God's order. It's against God's law. Jacob's fixing to be, participate in an immoral thing to have a second wife. Rachel. But he does it. So the scripture says the agreement for another seven years to work. Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. That means they went. He didn't have to wait another seven years to get Rachel. He just went through that seven-day customary festival time for bridal preparation, and then he married Rachel, and then worked another seven years. So he had both wives at the same time. But this polygamy, this immoral arrangement of two wives creates huge problems in the family. Arguments, fussing, fighting, spitting on each other. It wasn't a good thing. And the Bible says, in verse 29, Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah and served with him yet seven other years. You realize that Jacob loved Rachel, but he, he did not love Leah. He did not love Leah. But Leah was more spiritually suited for Jacob than Rachel was. Leah, if the commentators are right, the scholars, Jewish scholars are right, Leah is full of wisdom and knowledge. She was more suited to Jacob spiritually than Rachel. But Jacob loved Rachel because of her appearance. He loved her. Jacob loved Rachel. But Rachel never, one time ever, as I come to a close, Rachel never told Jacob one time that she loved him. Not one time. Leah, on the other hand, loved Jacob. Leah wanted to be a good wife for Jacob. She loved Jacob. Jacob loved somebody that didn't love him. And the one that loved him, he hated. 
He didn't love her. And it set up great problems and conflict within the home, within the marriage. And the Bible says God saw that. He saw that Leah was hated. Leah's trying. She's trying. She's trying to win his affection. She's trying. Let me tell you something. You can't buy love. You can't buy love. When we get to the next chapter next week, Lord willing, you're going to find out that Rachel, she didn't love Jacob. Rachel would trade him off in a heartbeat. In the next chapter, you're going to see it. Rachel will trade Jacob off for a bunch of mandrakes. We'll explain mandrakes to you next week. What is mandrakes? She cared more for mandrakes than she did Rachel. She'd trade him off in a heartbeat. Leah said, I want my husband. I want my man. You can have the mandrakes. Give me my man. Rachel said, I don't care. You can have him. I want the mandrakes. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's in the Bible. I want an aphrodisiac. We'll get there. The Bible says in verse 31, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. I mean, she's just having one child after another child after another child after another child. And God did it because He saw that Jacob hated Leah. The Bible says, And Leah conceived. Can you imagine being this wife, Leah, that loved that man Jacob, wanted to be a good wife to that man, Jacob, is not loved back? Can you imagine being Leah and having an unhappy marriage? Living with an unhappy marriage? Doing everything she can to win his affection? She knows his affection is with Rachel, the younger sister. But God does something for her. She might not be as beautiful as Rachel, but she's more productive. And the Bible says Leah has a child, and that firstborn's name is Reuben. For she said, Sure, the Lord hath looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Maybe I can buy his love. Maybe this child that I've just given birth to for him will cause him to love me like I want him to love me. I'll call him Reuben. The Bible says in verse 33, she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She said, God knows I'm still hated. My husband doesn't love me. I'm still hated. But God heard my prayer. I'll call him Simeon. The Lord hears. The Lord heard my prayer. She conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name is called Levi, which means to be joined. 
You can't buy love. So she has another son, and she calls his name Judah, which means praise. She finally gets to a place in her life where she stops complaining. She finally gets to a place in her life when she sees after giving birth to Reuben and Simeon and Levi, it didn't change her relationship with her husband. She stops complaining and starts praising. She stops complaining and she looks to God and she lifts her hand. She calls Him Judah. She says, I can't change my husband the way he feels about me, but I can praise my God. I can worship my God. She turned her affection from complaining to praise. And he preached it to us last Sunday night. She finally got there. She conceived again to bear a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. And she will give another, a birth to another one, Issachar, in the next chapter, which means to hire. We'll talk about that next week. So on and so forth. But Jacob wasn't right with God in the way he treated Leah. Leah was full of wisdom. Leah was more spiritually suited, suitable for Jacob than Rachel was. And he wept when Rachel came in. He wept when Rachel left. He's going to have to throw her on the side of the road and bury Rachel later in years as she gives birth to Benoni or Benjamin. She would depart with tears running down his face. When he finally gets right with God, we go to the Bible. In the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis. Verse 31, it says, There they buried Abraham, Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. He gave him gave command, You bury me. Not on the side of the road where Rachel was buried. We'll see it later. But Jacob said, You bury me with Leah. When he finally got right with God, he saw the law of the birthright. The importance of the elder. He finally gets right with God. He says, bury me with Leah. He tried so hard to win the affection of, of Rachel, and Rachel never told him she loved him. And Leah, on the hand, other hand, tried so hard to get the affection of Jacob. Jacob hated her until he got right with God. He got right with God. He said, bury me with Leah. And so God is allowing this man to go through a process. He's allowing this man through some very difficult times of, of even being deceived and tricked in his own life. He's taking stuff out of Jacob that needs to be taken out of Jacob. He's teaching Jacob truths that are very important. The law of the birthright. And it'll carry right over into the next few chapters. We want to see, we're going to see Rachel tries to steal the birthright from the elder. She gets the tokens of her daddy's house, the gods of her daddy. Well, there's some mixture here. 
but she gets those tokens and she takes them with her when they're leaving town. And she's going to sit on them in her tent when she's on her time of the month because she wants the birthright. God's going to teach him while he's in this land the law of the birthright. He's going to teach him. He's going to get some stuff out of Jacob. And when we see him later on, we're going to see him returning back home just like God had promised that he would. And just like God said he would protect him and he would provide for him and that he would give a safe journey. And God did all of that. And we're going to see that as we go through progressively the life of this man, Jacob. The faithfulness of God. But I want to tell you something. Even though you're a believer and I'm a believer, there's still stuff in us that God's got to get out of us. And if we're impatient, He'll put you in a place where all you can do is wait. If you won't trust God, He'll put you in a place where all you can do is trust God. If you're used to trying to manipulate, lie, and trick your way through life, God will put you in a place where you're going to be manipulated, lied to, and tricked in life. And when He makes it back home after 20 years, just like God said He would. He's going to be a different man. He's going to be a changed man. So God works in our life. Amen? We reap what we sow. And there are many things that we still need to learn as we walk with God. Believers are not angels. They're not. God knows how to get my attention. He knows how to get your attention. Be sure of that. So the best thing that you can do is you trust God. You make a commitment to the house of God. You make a commitment to serve God. You make a commitment to bring your tithes and offerings to the Lord. You make a commitment to be truthful in your your dealings and your relationships with God and believers. Make sure that you walk the way you're supposed to walk with God. But also know that what you sow, you're going to reap. It's just part of it. When you start going through things, say, Lord, why is this happening to me? Think back. Did you do it before? Amen. Isn't God good, though? He keeps working with us. All right. So we'll stand now, and I appreciate your time this morning. Amen. Father God, we come before you right now. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our life. We thank you, Lord, that your presence is here in this place. We focus our attention upon you, God, and we put you in your rightful place in our life. Lord, if we're the kind of people that like to make deals and cut deals with You, Lord, I know that over a period of time You're going to take that out of us. All I can say, Lord, to You is this. I submit to Your will and Your purpose in my life. Lord, I don't want to reap in my life bad things because of what I've done. I want to live in such a way, Father God, that my reaping 
would be blessed. I pray today for this congregation this morning that those that needed to hear this word preached would do something with it. Make the proper commitments that they need to make and the proper changes that they need to make. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word and to glorify you in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Hope this has been a blessing to you because I desire to bless you. I desire that you take the word of God that's preached to you and you apply it to your life and you live by it, you know, so you have a good life. You do a blessed life. So that God can use you the way He wants to use you. How many of y'all want that in your life? Amen. Amen. And that's why that's why we spend so much time in this word. Because this is the answer right here. The Bible's the answer. It tells us what not to do, it tells us what to do. So let's live by it. That's why I preach it to you. Because I want you to be blessed. I want your life to be abundant. Hallelujah. In my spirit right now, I feel there's some of you scared to death. You're standing right there, man. You look at your history. You look at your life. You're going, whoa. If I'm going to reap what I did, I don't have a chance. God's a good God. And in the midst of everything that Jacob did, he's going to reap, but you still see the hand of God upon that man's life and the favor of God upon that man's life. And angels walk with that man. The presence of God was with that man. God protected him. God provided for him. Even though God had to spank him a little bit. Just trust the Lord. Amen? Trust the Lord. Walk with God. You say, okay, God, if I if you need to spank me, spank me. You know? If you need to teach me something, teach me something. When you teach me, I'm going to learn it. I'm going to make the changes I need to make. Amen? You get to a place in your life where you're so prideful, you don't think you need anything. No, God, I need to change. There's some stuff in me that's not right. I need to change. If you need to spank me, go ahead. Amen? I just want to be the person that God wants me to be. Okay? That's why I preach to you the Word of the Lord. And I show you these things in the Bible and tell you about people, they live, they're Christians, they're believers. If you understand what I'm saying, Old Testament, why? Believers acting like that. Believers' homes in trouble. Believers' homes filled with bitterness and hatred and quarreling and spitting. You understand? Believers' homes that husbands don't love wives and wives don't love husbands and on and on and on and on it goes, you know, right here in this Bible. Amen? Be encouraged and live for the Lord. He's always faithful and He's always right. I love you. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord Jesus.